0: On the premiere episode of Bar Tell Me Something Good, we're taking a look at the 1966 short film The Secret Cinema and its later television adaptation for Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories. Welcome to the very first episode of Bartell Me Something Good, a podcast all about the writer, director, and actor Paul Bartell. My name is Adriana Gober, and today I am joined by my very good friends William O'Donnell and Doug Tilley. How are you guys doing?
1: Pretty good. I'm pretty good.
2: I'm doing so great. I'm so excited. <laughs> About this podcast. Uh, I mean, this is not going to be anything surprising to our listeners, but on this podcast, Bart told me something good. We're going to be talking about a subject that I have a lot of passion for and that Liam
1: doesn't care about whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be clear. It's not that I don't care. It's that I am woefully ignorant. And those I I have learned over time, and someday you will too, Doug, are not the same thing. Sometimes we are ignorant about something. And then as we are taught by our friends, both the compassionate like Adriana Mm -hmm. and the cruel and mean like you, (laughs) Uh uh, as we learn more, we become passionate about it. And I'm excited to become passionate about Paul Bartel.
2: One of the things I like most about you, Liam, is that you are willing to go along with crazy schemes, right? That's what this is all about, is you get wrapped up in other people's passions, and then the idea is that over time you're going to be compassionate about those subjects yourself. And that, that is the hope, right? Is that 30, 40, 70 episodes into Bartell Me Something Good, you're going to be the world's biggest Paul Bartel fan.
1: I am really hoping it's not <laughs> going to take that with long. Me. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, yeah. First of all, I'm not trying to to take anything away from our co-host Spilling Adriana. Thunder. Yeah, exactly. No, thank you. But, uh, but I do hope that priest. I mean, let's say after this uh, this episode. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert! I'm very interested. I don't know oh. that I'm passionate yet, but I am very interested. Hmm. I like how that's not interesting for you at all. You you made this big deal out of whether I care or not, and then when I reveal, yeah, I think I'm into it. You're like, yeah, who cares? Whatever. I'm just making conversation. I hate <laughs> you so much.
0: Um, before we start uh, discussing uh, the films, I think it's worth talking about why it is that we wanted to do this show, um, and obviously Liam has already exposed himself as a fraud. Uh, you know, <laughs> so. It's more like, why did Doug and I want to do this show that we roped Liam into? Um, mm-hmm. And I obviously, Doug, I can't speak for you, but um, part of the reason I really wanted to do this show is because I love Paul Bartel. And, you know. And when I sit down to watch a movie and I see that directed by Paul Bartel credit flash across the screen, and when I see his adorable bearded face, I feel really comforted. It's like a warm blanket is enveloping me. And, you know, that's because he's a figure who has been in so many movies that I love. Uh, And, you know, he made a few of them himself. Um, And because as, as I really started to get into his work and started diving into interviews, he really comes across like a warm, compassionate soul. And as dark and sardonic as his films can be, I think that warmth of humanity comes through too. And, you know, yeah, also he was gay and out for his entire career, but his, his sexuality was a major source of friction um, in uh, his family relationships. And he had a lot of anger and resentment over this inability to be acknowledged and seen. And And I think he channeled that anger and frustration into his work. Uh, you know, his films have this sort of repressed energy to them and they're subversive and, and full of this very arch sense of humor and and all of that coalesces into um, a very queer sensibility which was very familiar to me and appealed to me immediately Um, but the other reason I really wanted to do this show uh, is because very often I'll be talking to somebody who is super into movies like genre fans and I'll mention Paul Bartel and the response I get back is who uh, you know, they know New World Pictures and they know Roger Corman and, they, you know, they know Joe Dante, Jonathan Demi, you know, the other regulars in that stable. But for some reason, Paul Bartel, you know, though he they may recognize him when they see him, his name doesn't have that same cachet, but it should. And that is my mission with Bartel Me Something Good. It's to uh, proselytize and spread the good word of Bartel far and wide. What about you, Doug?
2: You know, I feel really similarly. Uh, Paul Bartel for me was a figure that I associated most with kind of general cult movies when I was getting into movies generally, particularly in the 1990s, right? When I first discovered things like Death Race 2000, his work with Roger Corman. And then, sure, yeah. you know, th- really the Rosetta Stone for me was Eating Raoul, which was a movie that I caught sort of randomly, I think, on television one night. And I was like, what is this? And it's such a kind of pure distillation of his sensibilities and, of course, you know, the, the collaborators that he would keep within the rest of his career. But when when you, you do compare his career to some of the other names, maybe the more well-known names that came out of that Roger Corman camp in the 70s, he never really did that switch to, maybe there was an attempt to make more mainstream films with things like Lust in the Dust, but he never really got that hit, right? He never really got that movie that turned him into a more of a mainstream figure like a Joe Dante did with things like Gremlins and Inner etc., etc. But he kept making movies that were so uh, personalized to his sensibility, like I mentioned, but also so strange, so weird. One of the first times I ever knew of Paul Bartell as a personality is there was a Canadian television show in the 1990s called Movie Television, and all it was was a behind-the-scenes look at the making of movies, and one of the movies that they showcased, this was in the early 1990s, was a movie called Shelf Life, and we'll eventually get to Shelf Life on this show, and it's troubled, sad history, but they were showing the making of this fascinating looking movie, and they interviewed Paul Bartel. and I'm like, this is so interesting, this looks great, and then I waited for it to come out, and I waited, and I waited, and I think that there's an element of his entire career that is sort of like that, where it's not unrealized potential. It's nothing like that. He was—he's such a visible presence in so many movies, both as an actor and, uh, of course, his filmography as a director. But he just never got the credit or attention that he really deserved for a, a multitude of reasons. And I think that's something that it's going to be interesting—maybe not always fun, but certainly interesting—to explore on in this podcast as we go through his work.
0: And I, I predict it now that this podcast is going to be the catalyst for the Paul Bartel Renaissance. <laughs> The first feature we'll be discussing is his his debut film the secret cinema um i have either had either of you seen this before we decided we were going to cover it
1: no i didn't know i mean my experience with uh mr Bartel is purely death race 2000 and then <laughs> once i finally you know when you guys suggested this and i looked it up i i know him as the the person who seems to always be with Mary Warrenoff so he's great but i you know realizing like, oh wait, he was a filmmaker and there's all these movies. And then I looked at the list and was like, wow, a bunch of these movies are on my to watch list, but I haven't gotten there yet. I had no idea they were all by the same person. Oh, wow. Like I, it, it was a bunch of excitement, but um, unfortunately, and I think this is true of not just him, but a lot of directors, right? I don't start with their short films and I probably should. Like I think that starting at the actual beginning of a director's career It's only something I do for podcasts, and it's never something I do in real life. And 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 doing it here and and um thinking about doing, you know, whether I should have done it for other directors. I think it's a great way to start, and it's was pretty interesting to to get to watch it for this episode.
2: I never delved into his the earliest part of his career before. For the most part, it was based on availability, though it was very easy for us to track down a copy of Secret Cinema. I may have seen the amazing stories adaptation of it when I was when I was a kid and maybe even a little bit after that I'm a big fan of Griffin Dunn in this particular time period so maybe I would have searched out something like that without maybe even necessarily connecting it to the rest of Paul Bartel's career but uh, I'm really glad that we're pairing the two versions of this story because I really think it kind of tells a more complete story about his whole career before we kind of go into it piece by piece.
1: I know I definitely saw that episode because I know as a kid, I watched every episode of that show. I was like <laughs> obsessed with it, but watching it for this, it felt fresh for the most part there's a couple of scenes that maybe rang a bell a teeny bit but i don't have a strong memory of it uh however i don't have a strong memory of any of that show the only reason i know how much i watched it is a combo of my mom telling me and knowing the intro yes, I was just going intro, to say that like fucking i intro.
0: i know that i've, I've seen the show before um in somewhere in my distant past because that amazingly terrible cg yeah, yeah. Intro. <laughs> like it, it all came flooding back to me as soon as i clicked play
2: my memory of that intro i mean aside from the john williams music is that i remember as a kid thinking this is the most incredible this yep. this computer yep. graphics is the most incredible thing i've ever seen and you're absolutely right it definitely looks like something that it would have been playing in the background of a screensaver uh-huh. in 1996
1: it, it looks terrible it's but... it's
0: very dated but in a way i find charming yeah,
1: absolutely yeah, yeah 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 it it just hearing the music let alone seeing that that intro i felt something like i felt a childhood memory a little bit but like if you ask me any of the episodes what they were about i don't I don't have any specific memories, unlike for example, the other thing I was a sepsis was uh Tales from the Dark Side. And there's mm. a few episodes of Tales from the Dark Side I still remember, but for the most part, it's just the music. I hear that music intro as well, and something in my brain goes, Oh, there it is. That's the thing, you know? But uh, but I don't I didn't remember this at all.
2: There's a new version of Amazing Stories, is that right?
1: Yes, I've never watched it. And I yeah. and I don't know if I should because I haven't it's one of those things. I don't know if you two have this where when you don't hear about something you assume it must that, be bad that, yeah i was just
2: gonna say i don't think i've heard one person talk about it. i heard so you know people talked a little about the twilight zone yeah kind of uh, a reimagining from a couple years ago but amazing stories i heard it was going to premiere i heard that it had premiered and then i didn't hear anyone talk about it
0: i didn't hear a thing about it so this this is all news to me i think
2: it might be on apple plus which might be the explanation for why we yeah. haven't heard about it
0: <laughs> okay well coming up after the break the secret cinema.
1: Once a month we have lunch together. Is it too much to ask you to be on time once a
0: month? I have an appointment in 15 minutes. I've already ordered. Please, Mother. Now don't you start in on me too. I've had more in the last two days I can cope with.
2: Dick told me last night he doesn't want to see me anymore. And now a friend at the office is trying to talk me into Please, Jay. Don't tell me anymore. I don't
0: want you to spoil it for me spoil it for you yes dear what's the point of paying two dollars to see it if i know in advance what's going to happen mother what
1: are you take your order miss how about a nice turkey sandwich no thank you i just a cup of vegetable soup
2: and a mixed green salad please
0: no vegetable soup how about
1: turkey soup no no i'll take tomato then you sure you wouldn't like a hot turkey sandwich? No, thank you. No.
0: Oh. <laughs> a woman suspects that someone has clandestinely been filming her life and that her friends and acquaintances are seeing the movies in secret screenings. The Secret Cinema, released in 1968, was written and directed by Paul Bartell, starring Amy Vane, Philip Carlson, and Barry Dennett. So, The Secret Cinema, it was filmed on location throughout New York City in the spring of 1966. Um, it was a very low-budget affair. Uh, it was made on a budget of about $5,000 with a lot of loaned equipment and, and volunteers. And although it, it got more wider distribution in 1968, it was actually released originally two years earlier in 1966. But when it hit theaters in 1968, it, it played in New York City on a double bill with... Brian De Palma's Murder Ahmad, which is one of his earliest films. Uh, And actually, Paul Bartel appears in High Mom, Mm -hmm.
2: um,
0: which is another early De Palma John. You know, one of the things I find really interesting about the secret cinema as somebody who's very familiar with Bartel's body of work is that, you know, although it is kind of more experimental than his later features, which are kind of have more of a straightforward linear... Uh, narrative. Um, A lot of his sensibilities and interests as a filmmaker are already pretty fully formed here. Um, You know, there's a lot of the familiar Bartel touches, you know, it has this very sardonic tone. Um, You know, voyeurism is a theme. Um, The plot involves conspiracy. There are hints of queerness. Um, And you have the imperiled female protagonist who uh, you know we see in later Bartell features but yeah I, I'm curious what both of you thought of this I'm going to start with Liam because I know that Doug likes this movie but I have no idea what kind of impression it made on Liam so Liam how about you tell us about this
1: usually when I feel like um, I can see what's coming uh in in a in a in a piece of of art especially in a in a film it's a it's a little bit of a disappointment because i like that feeling of surprise and this is one of those examples where i did not feel that at all that even though from the beginning i was kind of like okay i think i have an idea of where this is going and, and and what this will involve um that actually created this like joyful kind of tension for me because then I I felt a little bit of anxiety watching it unfold because I felt like I knew what it was about and um for something that like you know is is also a thing that would become a uh, sort of punchy fun episode of amazing stories uh I kind of thought that's how it would work as a short film and for me there was just like I don't know there was this extra layer of like of anxiety even as it's funny and uh, there's some like real goofy moments to it. Um, I, I don't know. I I still felt a, a certain amount of tension watching it, sort of fulfill some of my expectations. Like, oh no, this is what's going to happen. Oh no, it's happening. Oh no, oh no. And uh, and I loved it. It was it's really funny. Like I, I guess I shouldn't sound so surprised, y'all, because obviously we're doing this podcast. So whatever. But um, I guess I went in sort of thinking like, okay, this is. This is going to be something where I kind of have an idea of of, of what I'm getting, and yet, um, instead of feeling like, okay, well, that was, you know, whatever, the way that everything sort of happened still had, like, all these little surprises and quirky, unexpected elements to it, and I don't know, I just really... I really was, again, this was, uh, I guess the way to put it is, this was a really great way for me to start this experience, uh, because I didn't, I I was ready to, to, to be maybe not disappointed, but be kind of like, okay, well, that was cool, but whatever. Uh, and instead, I, I, it was over, and I was kind of like, that was a lot of fun, and um, really effective, and just not something I kind of Expected at all and and i don't know i felt really joyful afterwards like like wow this is great i can't wait to see what happens when he has i mean i guess we do kind of see what happens when he has a budget since we see the amazing stories (laughs) version but i mean i you know of his feature-length films i except for one i haven't seen them and so like seeing him do this with so little money and really kind of scraping it together i just got really excited
0: that makes me so happy to hear because i I really wasn't sure what you were going to make of it um so the fact that your response is so positive is definitely hardening
1: well, I mean on paper right if I'm just telling someone about it there's something I don't know this sounds insulting but I don't mean it that way there's something kind of like basic about it you know like it it, it could come across as like corny or predictable like i uh, i guess we're at the point as a culture where if i say like it turns out her whole life is being filmed someone might like roll their eyes like oh right. god that sounds well like, because Ugh. it's a cliche
0: now but it yeah. certainly wasn't in 1966 no. and well, i think this film anticipates a lot of cultural things that happen yeah much and, later
1: and even still like i could understand someone saying like oh it's it's you know, it's become a cliche and then going into this expecting that. But it it still, it had so much going on that I didn't, at no point was I like, whatever, you know, there was no, it, 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 it had little surprises for me, even as it went all the places I kind maybe not all the places, but a lot of places I kind of thought it might. It still did it in a way that was continually surprising and really like made me excited watching it, you know?
0: Totally. And Doug, it sounded like you were trying to jump into the conversation at, yeah, sorry, at one point.
2: It's a movie that is prescient, obviously. We've already talked about it, and we'll probably talk about it uh, a few more times, particularly in the reimagined version of it. But it seems almost accidentally prescient to a certain extent. One of the things on the, uh, I think we all, we checked out an interview with uh, Rob Schulenberg, uh, the production designer who also worked on The Secret Cinema. And he mentions that the concept of it came from a response more to underground cinema and like people in right. their community, you know, talking about the fact that there are these movies that are available that you could see, but you could only see if you were in the in crowd and people were talking about them and they had these conversations. This movie was made in some way as a response to that as opposed to being a response. If you were to make this movie in 2001, of course, it would be a response to reality television or just television culture in general. And it's not that it's not necessarily talking about that and voyeurism and all of that because that's something that we know pops up again and again in as themes in Paul Bartel's work, but it's not such a hacky response to those things, because it has more on its mind. And so it doesn't feel like Ed TV or something like that. We'll, might, we'll probably talk about The Truman Show in just a little bit. But it doesn't feel like something that is supposed to be kind of winky. And um, and and um it also has a sense of menace in it. And I think that's something that you were talking about, Liam, that you are kind of hinting at there. It's so interesting to watch these two versions of this story, because the 1980s version is exactly the version that I would have thought Paul Bartel would have made, right? It feels very much like his work that I expect, but there's something a little darker in this version, and it, it feels, uh, and, and even though it's kind of technically a little bit more amateurish for the reasons that you've already brought up, very low budget, seems like it uh, wasn't filmed with, with St. Sound, so there's a kind of a disconnect there as well, but there's just something about this character at its core who's done nothing to hurt anybody, and is now just being put through this horrific, you know, nightmarish scenario. There's there's a sequence that's in both versions that that plays out almost exactly the same where she goes to lunch with her mother. And then there's a part where the waitress uh, asks her what she wants and just kind of forces this kind of turkey sandwich on her. When Mary Warnoff is playing that character, it's funny and amusing. And, you know, probably there's a little bit of darkness there. But in the original version, it just feels like a nightmare. It feels like a dream that's kind of gone out of control. And that's what I kind of... I'm sure at the end of this we'll talk about which version we prefer, but I'll just give it away right now. I preferred the more low-budget, darker version simply because it feels more distilled and maybe it's got a little bit of kind of a raw nastiness that I also respond to as well.
0: And also, I mean, just the way that it's shot, like some of the shot composition that you have like these canted angles, like it it really plays into like this disorientation that this Jane character is feeling, um, you know, because she's being gaslighted by everyone she knows. I love yeah. how
2: her, her boyfriend was also just like a filmmaker, you know, pretentious asshole guy. Uh, th- the way that, that that becomes a more of a yuppieish character in the remake it just feels like it's very much the, the culture that ba- Paul the Bartel time, was pro- yeah. probably surrounded by at that particular time.
0: And of course, you know, he already thoroughly roasted yuppies and eating Raoul just a few years before that, but...
1: There's there's a real sense, as Doug was saying, of that nightmare feeling. And it's not that the Amazing Stories one isn't also uh, a kind of nightmare, but I don't know, something... It, like, it, it really did give me, in a good way, anxiety, which maybe isn't a reality for some of our listeners. <laughs> but for me, there's a certain kind of anxiety a film can give me. And when it's doing it in a format in which I really felt like I knew what was going on. Like, I really felt like, okay, I know what this is about. I know where this is going. I know the point it's going to make. And, and, it, and it did fulfill a lot of the things I was expecting. But, oh, man, there is this tension to it um, and a real feeling of, like, I honestly at times thought something maybe more horrifying was going to happen because mm-hmm. I felt very much like, this is an uncertain space I am in, and we're, we've been doing things that feel you know uh upsetting but but nothing's gone past into like uh like true gross or 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 upsetting territory but i I, I couldn't trust that that wasn't where I was going to go because it it did feel very unsettled and very on the edge even while still being silly and goofy there's a lot of like goofiness here, but it didn't feel like comforting goofiness at all and what and what
2: I mean talk about a modern version of a really kind of disturbing way to present. this is something we've seen in a lot of different media after this like like sure. the um the sitcom sequence in natural born killers where you have ronnie dangerfield yeah. and it's just incredibly yeah. disturbing right i mean this starts with a silent movie sequence of right. the lead character trying not to be sexually assaulted by her boss right i mean it's yeah and it it's has the intertitles and
0: everything yeah
2: exactly right and anyone like a I silent mean, anyway, film and anyone would recognize that from it. But the idea that it has this kind of lightly comedic tone attached to something that is so disturbing and so strange and and uh, unpleasant. I mean, I th- I think that it really does in some way feel like a manifesto for the rest of Paul Bartel's career, which is just that I'm never going to make it easy on the audience. And, and it's also, again, it's also interesting to pair that with uh, how this version ends compared to how the Amazing Stories version ends. I mean, I know yeah. that there's... A real necessity to change things around for the television crowd. I mean, the, the the produced by Steven Spielberg probably says it all. But you know, we'll talk about the ending of this. I'm sure in a minute. But these these two pieces, even though they really do have a very similar structure and some sequences reflect each other exactly, they end very differently.
0: And this the original was supposed to end. It was supposed to have an even bleaker ending. Yeah. Um, there, I can read the quotation here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is Bartel, um talking about the original concept for the secret cinema the first image of the story that occurred to me was the ending i wanted to have the heroine jane deceived and abandoned by everyone alone in her apartment stumbling into her bathroom to open her veins with a razor and instead of being in her bathroom she finds herself on the stage of radio city Music Hall with thousands of people cheering her and applauding that was the first idea, and the whole rest of the scenario followed and As so often happens with first ideas, it was never realized and i kind of I'm kind of glad i don't know i think I think the way that it the ending he wound up going with works really well um but I don't know, I mean, as liam knows, like I love a really good punishing emotional <laughs> film, so it's a little yeah. edge,
2: lordy, you know yeah it, it is even though the concept I think would be. I mean it certainly would have gotten people's attention but this this the movie already goes to such dark places it would be you know basically you, you, the whole purpose of it is a woman being gaslit into insanity being locked away at the end uh and and to to take to take that to the next level of her having to take her own life boy it would be punishing in a way that might be Maybe a little too much. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it really depends on how it plays out. It is still kind of imaginative. and Like, it's such a striking image to think about that it's almost better that it's unrealized because maybe it couldn't live up to that with the budget
1: that they had. What's dark yeah. about it for me is I feel like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels for me that that ending is even more unintentionally prescient like that ending for me feels even more like what the reality of social media is for a lot of people uh is this like i will once i finally uh live out all of my pain and trauma publicly that i will truly be a star is just like the darkest possible turn but also feels like really resonant in a way like and again as you said doug i think all of this is uh is is uh possibly unintentionally prescient you know there's no way he would know the extent to which this reflects a lot of things that people are experiencing now but but that ending when i read that I, in the notes i was like whoa oh no <laughs> that feels maybe a little too real for me
0: yeah. all right do you guys have anything else you want to add on this
1: i uh i think that this um I think one of the things that could be misinterpreted about the performances here is that this level of caricature, which some of the characters are, 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 some of the actors are nailing with their character, with their characters, that this is like some, somehow easy. I feel like there's a real like sort of balance here where you have to believe that this is, that, that, that these people are doing this thing, but there's still a sense of, if the sense of fun left, the short, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It wouldn't make it more serious. It would make it more ridiculous. Like, there has to be both the menace and the sense of whimsy together. Like, if the if the thing took a turn and took itself more seriously, it would feel less impactful. If, I don't know if that makes sense. But it, it's like, I just feel like the performers are walking a line where they have to be both menacing and a bit uh, cartoonish, and that is not in my mind easy at all. And I was really impressed that in this thing that feels very sort of uh, uh, you know shoestring, that he was able to get these performances out of the actors.
2: I'll just say that if it did end with the woman killing herself in front of a clapping crowd, he he probably wouldn't have he probably wouldn't have gotten the gig to remake it for Amazing Stories. Very true. that would true. have been a yeah. difficult one to, to switch <laughs> around. Uh, the other thing is, I just wanted to say my favorite part of this movie, which is the when she sees the movie theater showing a yeah. the part of her life. Um, and she goes into it and the the, uh, the ticket taker makes her wait in the kind of the waiting area. And then she has to stand there while everyone, you know, first she hears the actual thing that she's already encountered in her life uh, playing out. And then she sees the entire crowd, including all these people that she recognizes, coming out, filing out on the other side that feeling of being an outsider and not having access to the thing that everyone is talking about, and especially that it it involves you in some way, that's another level of kind of prescience, I think, to this, Yeah, I mean, the, and, and, you know, it plays into social media. It plays into, I think that feeling that a lot of people feel of just being an outsider when it comes to uh, not just art, but just uh, life in general. I, I, it really was affecting. And I think it, it was affecting in both versions of the story, which is probably why he, he had to play out almost exactly the same in the remake. I'm glad he kept that portion of it, though. It, it the remake comes with a much more fancy pop-up movie theater, which <laughs> also played into my fantasies a little bit. But yeah, I it was I think a it's literal a re-
0: secret cinema.
2: Yeah, exactly. I I, I really like. I think this is actually worth going out of your way to see. I I already suggested that it's like a Rosetta Stone for the rest of his career, but also it's a very easy watch. Uh, Even though it does have those kind of technical limitations, it's not something where, because it's so short, because the the concept is so well explored, and because it feels so modern in a lot of the ways and a lot of the themes that it's touching on, it's a really easy uh, short to watch in 2022 where, you know, a lot of the rougher, probably student films about this time period maybe might not have aged quite so well.
0: Well said, Doug. Okay, coming up we have the Amazing Stories episode of Secret Cinema.
2: Once a week we have lunch together. Is it too much to ask that you be on time one day a week? I'm still your mother, you know. I'm sorry, Mother. I've had the most terrible week. Dick called off our wedding. We're not getting married. Please, Jane, don't tell me anymore. I don't want you to spoil it for me. Spoiler for you mother. What are you talking Take about? Take your order miss
0: the turkey's very nice
2: uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just have a green salad, please
1: dark meter light.
2: No, no, I don't want turkey uh, Just a green salad and a glass of iced tea. No turkey
1: How about the turkey soup it's delicious I made it myself
0: How about bringing me my green salad and my iced tea
1: you don't have to get huffy
0: So, Amazing Stories was an anthology series created by Steven Spielberg. Uh, It aired on NBC from September 29th, 1985 to April 10th, 1987. And, you know, one of the many gigs that came after the success of eating Raoul for Paul Bartel was an episode of Amazing Stories. And for this episode, he decided to adapt The Secret Cinema and kind of he... He enlisted the help of Barry Denon, who appears in both versions, uh, to sort of rework uh, and script this version. And this time around, they had a much larger budget, uh, considering, you know, Steven Spielberg was behind this thing. And I think, uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of similarities between the two versions, but I th- I think the differences are very interesting. I mean, we not only have that bigger budget that I mentioned, I, there's like a very stark contrast in tone, I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything in this version is very heightened and I think that this sort of camp sensibility is much more pronounced and, you know, something Liam mentioned is that there's this, there's this undercurrent of menace and dread in the original and which I don't really feel is that present in this version but i don't know like doug, doug earlier when we were talking you mentioned that you think that this episode of amazing stories um really typifies a lot of like what people love about Bartel's work um and i'm kind of curious what exactly you mean by that
2: i mean i think there's, it's certainly a more palatable um darkness in here as you are already referring to and whether that's the spielberg influence or the fact that it has to be airing on nbc in prime time that sort of thing it could be any number of different things but when i think about his work i i do think of it it's kind of a sly wink that he's giving to the camera with a lot of it there's the, the satirical elements yeah. of death race 2000 are very funny right even though if you think about them if you really you know start thinking about the the general concept of that movie and the way media is shown in that movie there's a darkness that it, it it is it goes to places that other movies of that time period even science fiction movies that are talking about like a dystopian future they just wouldn't go into those places because they reflect so badly on the real world of that time period right and, and kind you, of the
0: our, our, our capacity for cruelty.
2: Absolutely. But that's the strange thing about this, because it the ending of the first version of the secret cinema is incredibly cruel. In this version, it kind of gives the main character a little bit of an out at the end, and then she's even able to get her revenge. But the thing that I find most interesting about this is the fact that in the original, you know, the 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 mastermind behind it all—we never know their motivation. We don't really understand necessarily why or how they're doing it. There almost seems to be a magical element to it. In this, it's Paul Bartel himself uh, working with Mary Warren of, you know, who who's kind of pulling the strings. But there, even they are being bossed around by a producer who's trying to 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 kind of get their money's worth out of this whole concept. And and it it becomes a lot more. Uh, overtly satirical about media at that time period, and it makes it instead of it no longer feels like it's about underground cinema at all. Nor really should it be, if it's going to be in this time period. It really does feel like a satire on movie making, on the the frustrations of that, and and of course that level of voyeurism, which is kind of implicit in both versions. But the the part yeah. in this the part in this one where you know they just start taking apart the set while she's uh, you know finishing up her part in it and then she has to talk to the actor who was her boyfriend played by griffin dunn in this and he you know he shakes her hand his name isn't even the name that she knew him as you know and then her part in it is over and even though you know she might have a certain level of celebrity from it there's even some talk about how much she should get paid the the long-term effects of it are not nearly like you know being locked away in an insane asylum or something like that the gaslighting part of it even though it's still a huge part of the story it's it's more cartoonish and more comical and more kind of fun than in the original version and maybe it's just my own personality but i like the the kind of edge that the original has even if it didn't go as far as bartell wanted to originally that said if i was going to throw something on that was going to be kind of consistent thematically with something like Eating Raoul, it definitely would be this version because it feels very much like the later era, you know, uh, less than the dust, um, uh, even shelf life. I mean, that kind of eye of Paul Paul Bartel in the eighties and beyond, this feels very much like it's right in the midst of it. And maybe a big part of that is the fact that Paul Bartel is on screen for so much of this.
0: And Mary Waranoff. Of course. She plays like four different roles. (laughs) She (laughs) is, she's, she's, um, she plays a nurse. She plays a, a male waiter um, at the restaurant where Jane goes to meet her mother and she plays a character named Hildegard who is the uh, new Swedish girlfriend of uh, Jane's ex and she also plays um, there's a there's a fourth one what does she what else does she play Sorry, what am I forgetting the oh, the, uh, the box office yeah, yeah. the ticket taker at the box office. So Mary Warnoff really was earning that paycheck.
2: <laughs> Maybe we should talk about who Mary Warnoff is and why she is an important person in both Paul Bartel's life and just generally as a kind of pop culture figure.
0: Uh sure. Um I did not make notes on Mary Warnoff, so uh, forgive me. Well, we can just memory.
2: I'm sure we can yeah, talk so about she, her in more detail later, because since you know th- we're really talking about the original version here. But it's right. uh, I'm, I'm, and I don't pretend to be an expert in any way on her career, but I know that she had the connection with Andy Warhol. And yeah, she was
0: part of the the Factory crowd with Warhol. You know, she was in a number of of Corman films, uh, but she was a very close friend of Paul Bartel, and they kind of had this situation where they were like a package deal and they would they would appear in all of these movies together of course eating raul they played the blands who i are characters they um return to and shop in chopping mall um
1: <laughs> right yeah
0: very briefly but i i it always i'm always tickled by their little appearance in chopping in mall um so yeah like anytime paul Bertel had the opportunity to Yeah, Mary Warren off a job he would, but yeah, that's that's kind of the extent of my of my knowledge, um, of her. I don't know if you either of you want to add anything.
2: Well, I mean, she had a pretty extensive career outside of working. Oh, sure, yeah, but yeah, but certainly. Oh, she's in one of
0: my faves, "Sugar Cookies." I forgot about that movie. Um, And
2: and you know, and she's in Dick Tracy, I think. For yeah, yeah, Uh, but uh, I, I think. As we go through this podcast, I mean, she appeared in 17 films with Paul Bartel. That the fact that they're kind of that package deal, that she became. I don't know. I mean, I don't really know much about the relationship. That's something that, that I hope we'll explore as we go through here. But talk about a welcome presence in any movie that mm-hmm. she's in. Mm-hmm. And she really kind of seemed to understand that tone that he... You know, one of the things yeah. about Paul, Paul Bartel as an actor, I think one of the first times I saw him as a performer and recognized him as a performer was the first time I saw Rock and Roll High School. And he's really good in that. Right. Yeah. But he's not an actor first. You know what I mean? Like, he's, he gives strong performances as... But you're. it's hard to separate my knowledge of him as a personality from his performances, but when they're paired together, it's just something about the attitude that they bring. There's almost kind of a punk attitude to like,
1: like it's not that they necessarily
2: are better than the material, but they seem separated from the material a little bit. And I like that. It's why it's always such a pleasure to see them pop up together.
1: I feel like they play in my memory, at least they often play the sort of imperious, uh assholes who I bet they hated <laughs> in real life like a lot of their performances yeah. <laughs> I feel like they're mocking the very people who probably treated them badly you know mm-hmm. and 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 we're gonna explore Paul Bartel's story more uh but you know I, I think it is true like we'll, we'll probably need to make time for her but she just has such a, I, I think of her it's just such a weird thing for me because I think of her both as a face who I've seen in films a lot in supporting roles. And about hearing about her role in uh, the performances of The Velvet Underground. And these feel like two different people. How could these be the same people? And yet I know that they are the same person. And that just makes her also very interesting to me. Um, But it is true when they're together, there's a sort of character they portray that I feel like... There's always an edge to it because I, whenever I see them do it, I think, oh, man, you really hate these people. You know, like this is the, you are really skewering a certain kind of person who thinks that they're really great in a lot of different ways.
0: Yeah. And I think I think that edge you speak of appeals to other filmmakers, too. Like, yeah, um I don't know if either of you have seen the Greg Araki film, The Living End, Mm -hmm. which is my favorite film of his, but both Mary Warnoff and Paul Bartel both appear in that movie. Um, but she is especially great in it. She has, um, in a very small role, but it's extremely, extremely amusing. Um, so yeah, I, I, I I suggest immediately pressing pause right now and (laughs) watching that movie and then coming back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you're but, just like but, yeah, a fan no. of
2: like cult movies in general, you probably would have seen yeah. Mary yeah. Warnov in House of the For Devil, sure. uh, the Thai West film from a Oh, sure I year, forgot so.
0: she was in that.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's a role that you know, at least a more modern role that people might have taken, uh, seen her in. But I mean, you know, she played a lot of intimidating female figures in a lot of mm-hmm. different
1: movies throughout the '80s and '90s. I, I can I uh, I want to talk a little bit more about Amazing Stories because. Mm-hmm.
0: Because that's what we're here to discuss. Well, <laughs> well,
1: but I was thinking about what Doug was saying about the differences between these two things, right? And for me, the a, a lot of what I like about the original is, it sounds heavy to say lost, but I think I mean it. It's lost in this remake, but I didn't care because there's something about amazing. This feels to me like uh, this is Amazing Stories. is like this, the way, it, it, and for me, Amazing Stories is the most 80s thing, like, ever. (laughs) Like, Spielberg... that
0: hair that she... That makeover Uh, that Mary Warnoff gives her with that hair.
1: Oh, totally. But even just, like, the idea, like, Spielberg taking his sudden ascension to God of Hollywood and being like, I'm gonna make this show, and all of it's gonna be both fun and slightly menacing. Like, that's, like, what I remember about Amazing Stories stories, right? Is that they're all kind of fun, but with a few tweaks like a lot of them could be horror movies but they're not but they could be and then the list of directors like have you guys looked at the people who directed amazing stories episodes it, it some of them are obvious people like obviously joe dante would be on the list obviously spielberg or um uh Tom Holland or Mick Garris, sure, sure, sure. But then we've got Danny DeVito directing an episode, Burt Reynolds directing an episode, (laughs) um, or names that, like, I only kind of know because they ended up doing, uh, a lot of TV, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't know if you know Leslie Linka Glatter, um, or, um... There was another guy on here who's directed a bunch. I kind of lost it. But even people like Thomas Carter, like this list of directors, I think there there obviously were some directors who got their start or early chances on Amazing Stories. And so like I think of uh, his version as being something like we sort of said, like he made it, he made something that would be more easily digested on TV. But I also think it is something that fits the time. Like for me, uh, when I think about something that feels very 80s to me is the idea of, like, I took my upsetting student film and I made it something that still has elements that are familiar, still does a lot of the same things, but it's glossier and it has a different ending. And I don't know, just something about that feels very of the time and probably fits with some of the other things that are going on on this show. You
2: know, I mean, but doesn't that feel like not just of the time, but specifically – attuned to Steven Spielberg, right? The
1: Spielbergification.
2: I mean, you think about Toby Hooper's career with Steven Spielberg, but also the... the Also directed an episode. Right, and Twilight Zone movie of that time period, which has John Landis... I mean, obviously, it has John Landis involved, but Joe Dante and George Miller, and, and you have, you know that's even gets is able to get darker than this but the the fascination with that kind of short format storytelling i mean it's notable that this episode was the 20th episode of the first season of amazing stories episode 19 was directed by martin scorsese i mean this is right this right. The, 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 the amount of cachet that steven spielberg had in 1985 86 87 could not be overstated he, he i think he felt like he could turn anyone with a rough edge even if they came from yeah. that roger corman crew into a mainstream filmmaker.
1: I mean, there's not a lot of lists where you would go, oh, well, there's Brad Bird, Nick Castle, Paul Michael Glaser, you know what I mean? Like, it's just such a <laughs> interesting mix of random sort of people. And that was sort of, I, I think, you know, a lot of what Spielberg, I think, was doing at the time was, as you said, sort of pulling in these elements that maybe felt outside of the culture and making them a part of of the mainstream culture, but also when you were when you said does it feel very Spielberg, I can't help but think of the stories around E.T., right? Like yeah. all of the concept imagery for E.T. was fucking nightmare fuel. <laughs> like it's like literally was going to be one of the scarier movies of the decade. And instead we got E.T. you know like th- there's just something about that that feels of the time that this sort of fits in in that way. Um I'm kind of honestly very excited to watch Paul Tell's other episode of the show, which I assume <laughs> we'll get to it sometime, because I'm wondering how that is similar or different, you know, it, th- than other things that he's done.
0: I actually haven't seen that episode, so I cannot answer that question.
1: I mean, like I said, I've apparently I according to my mom at least, I've seen every episode of the show, but I couldn't tell you about a single one.
2: <laughs> it's funny that I don't think like, even though they brought back amazing stories, it didn't leave much of a cultural imprint i don't think that people talk about the classic episodes even compared to classic episodes of tales from the crypt or even tales from the dark side to some extent the only episode of amazing stories i ever hear anyone talk about is the family dog episode that brad yeah. bird did because yeah. it, a it was animated and b it actually turned into a tv series years later even though it was beleaguered and short-lived
1: i mean i hear more people discussing specific episodes of masters of horror as if you should know what it is yeah. a, a show that i've uh to be honest, never seen an episode of ever. And yet I watched every episode of amazing stories. And I don't remember a second, even I'm sure I saw that Brad Bird episode. I don't remember what it was. I don't remember I, any of it.
2: I don't want to interrupt the the whole concept that we're doing here, but I just saw that the final episode of amazing stories directed by Toby Hooper Features an alien played by Weird Al Yankovic threatening to destroy Earth,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's based on a story by Richard Matheson. I, I might watch that as soon as we're done wow. here today. <laughs> I mean,
1: you you've sold me, Doug. I'm now redoing. I'm rewatching the whole series <laughs> religiously because I need to see what this fucking show was about.
0: <laughs> I need to see those CG books flapping like birds <laughs> a bunch more times. <laughs> Is, is there anything that you think we've sort of missed about this episode that you really need to talk about?
2: Well, I want to mention that Griffin Dunn is in this, and only because I'm I'm a huge fan of his work during this time period, the after-hours period, I would say, of Griffin Dunn's sure, career. Yeah. Uh, he's great as a kind of slimy... Uh, the, the boyfriend character in the original version, really had there isn't much to him. He just has that one scene that he shows up in the background of a few other. But he's such that kind of smar- smarmy, yuppie, 80s version of an asshole that he's just perfect in this. And I also love the fact that when he's revealed to be just an actor the entire time, there's no malice in it at all. It's just like, yeah, hey, well, see ya, I'm gone now. I just thought it was so amazing and he's so much fun uh, here. And I guess we should also mention that Eve Arden, the the wonderful Eve Arden, is in this as well as Jane's mother. Uh, I felt a little bad that uh, Penny Pizer, who plays Jane, like she she's like fourth built in the beginning of it. I know.
0: Uh, I noticed that. that was yeah. Very odd.
2: Even though she is clearly the focus of this entire thing, and yeah, that it is funny to compare the makeover. Uh, scenes in both of these movies where both characters get like this fancy hairstyle to go out on the town and both are incredibly ridiculous in their own way but boy that 80s one it basically they dress her up like Cyndi Lauper and just point her out the door
1: I do want to say that some people might find one aspect of the remake better which is that um Jane in the first, I mean, part of the nightmare fuel of Jane in the first one is almost the way that she is very sort of passive. Like there are a lot of times where I want her to advocate for herself and and she can't or doesn't. And in this one, Jane is more of a character, but I'm not sure that that sells the narrative more. You know what I mean? Like, it, it it leads us to the new ending when she has this, you know, revenge, and, and we kind of can see how she could end up there. But um I don't know. There was something about that first performance that I still found very compelling, if also it made me very uncomfortable.
2: <laughs> well, the character in the original version... You know, she just is a regular person for the right. most part, right? Her her life doesn't seem to be – have. there's nothing really overtly entertaining about her life outside of right. the fact that she's going through some trouble. In the, in the remake version, she's more designed to be like a sitcom character, right? They've made right. her very clumsy, so everything she touches just breaks immediately. And then there's that part where she keeps getting hit by pies, and she opens up the refrigerator, and everything falls down on her. It's like it, – if she was a real person, she would theoretically recognize that something fucking weird is going on throughout all of this. But in the original, it's just like, that could be anybody. That could be you or I, and is just being totally fucked with, but not in a way that is overt until someone kind of mentions it to you, right?
0: Yeah, it's more insidious.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So as we mentioned earlier, um, both the original Secret Cinema and the the Amazing Stories version are well worth tracking down um, the original film is available as a special feature special feature on the uh, Criterion Collection Blu-ray of Eating Raul. Um, and uh, Season 1 of Amazing Stories, including, of course, Secret Cinema, is available to stream on NBC.com. Now, c- coming up on the next episode of our Tell Me Something Good, we'll be discussing the gleefully deranged 1972 psychological thriller, private parts which was Paul Bartels feature film debut Uh, so we am and Doug where can uh, folks find you on social media I guess we can start with you Doug
2: well, you can find the latest episodes of Cinema Board over at uh, cinepunks.com, or you can find our entire archive of shows, including podcasts devoted to such diverse uh, characters and people, uh, including Paul Bartell, of course, but also Alejandro Jodorowsky, George Kennedy, Jackie Chan, Carol Kane, and others over at com. We're also on Twitter at CinemaSmorg, and on Facebook, you can just do a search for board as well. If you have any feedback for this show or other shows, you can leave us uh, feedback through our social media or through the website as well. You can also find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at E-A-D-X-B-B. Until next time. Know why I've
1: waited, know why I've been blue Prayed each night for someone exactly like you Why should we spend money on a show or two? No one does those love scenes exactly